I'll be reading from Romans 8, verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to, the them, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Sometimes the statement, it depends on how you look at it, seems awfully inadequate. There are times and circumstances in which it sounds like nothing more than just a pious panacea. Because sometimes very real, unfair, and unreasonable tragedies occur in persons' lives. We see children that are born deformed or with fatal disorders. We see loving and caring people who have terrible accidents, and it's very difficult to assign a why as to that kind of tragedy taking place. We know that sometimes bad things happen to good people, and sometimes good things happen to bad people. And no matter how you choose to look at it, it is still a tragedy. I'll remind you that in the Old Testament in Psalm 73, a man by the name of Asaph dealt with this same difficulty in his own time. So this is an ancient struggle. It's a battle that every generation seems to go through. And that is exactly why this happens. Why do, as Asaph asked the question, do bad things happen to people who are struggling to live righteous lives? And why do those who seemingly are wicked prosper was his question. In fact, it was a very serious question. I've addressed that psalm before from this pulpit because Asaph says a few verses down in that psalm that his feet almost slipped. That simply means that he almost lost his faith over that. That was a spiritual, not a physical allusion to slipping. He almost lost his faith in God because he couldn't understand why these kinds of tragedies were taking place. Until, he said, later in that psalm, he went into the temple of God, and there he beheld their latter end. That simply means saw the last chapter in the book. Saw how it all turned out, and he understood that the ledger of life is not uh, always leveled. It isn't always balanced in this world. But in the next world, it will be, and there is a sense of satisfaction and gratification that comes from that. But what I'm talking about tonight is when times are tough in the right here and the now. How do you deal with times of difficulty, with times of affliction, of times perhaps even of persecution or ostracism because of your faith? We'd like to believe that we have complete control of our lives and that we can make everything work out all right if only we will have tenacity. And it is true that proper perspective and attitude go a long way in accomplishing those goals. But the reality is sometimes things happen that are simply beyond our control. If you don't believe that, then just stand in a hospital corridor for a while, stand in a funeral home for a while, and you'll see people who are asking these very questions and are struggling with these very issues. Sometimes they don't work out all right, no matter how it is that you choose to look at them, and that's a reality of this sin-cursed earth on which we live. Those situations, however, do not, I'm suggesting as emphatically as I know how tonight, do not negate the principle of controlling your life by choosing how to view things. Paul said in the text that Ronnie read a moment ago that all things really do work together for good to them that love the Lord. So we have to make a decision, a conscious decision of will in our lives that we're either going to believe that or we, or we won't. That is, we, we, we've got to look at it from the perspective of eternity. We've got to look at it through the telescope of inspiration to know that God has given us that assurance and so that we need to take that to our spiritual bank for immediate deposit. 
In fact, times of tragedy are most, the most important times to apply the principle of it depends on how you look at it. Tragedies of one kind or another enter the lives of us all, and, and some people allow those tragedies to overwhelm them, and they succumb to the very thing that Asaph discussed. They lose their faith over it. They blame God. Maybe they blame other people. But whatever happens, they, they've lost their spiritual standing because of the reality of suffering in their lives. And yet you see, on the other hand, others who have perhaps the same equal or, or even greater loss be able to work through that tragedies and can continue to live positive and victorious lives. And, and if you have any reasonableness about you at all, you have to ask yourself the question, why is it that this person was able to use those difficulties and, and, and grow stronger in personality, in character, in faith in God, while others use those very same kinds of issues and circumstances to allow those things to cause them to lose their faith, or at least to, to take a step back in their spiritual standing. So even then, it depends on how you look at it. I want to begin with a very important premise and a very important principle that we've talked about some before, and that is we must come to grips with the fact that life isn't fair. Now, I understand that you're not going to find any verse that actually says that, but I'll guarantee you, you're going to find Bible example after Bible example of people, let me name just one if I may, Joseph comes to mind, where bad things happen to a really good person, and life was not fair for Joseph. I think despite all the things that went on in his family dynamic before being sold down into Egypt, we would agree that Joseph was nonetheless a good person and that he did not deserve either being sold by his brothers into slavery. He did not deserve being imprisoned by Potiphar and, or by the Pharaoh and, and all the circumstances. He did not deserve being falsely accused by Potiphar's wife of, of that assault. None of those things that happened to Joseph were fair. And in reality, when you back off and, and get the right perspective on it and look at it the right way, I think that you'll come to agree and realize that it isn't supposed to be. Nobody ever said that it was. There's no passage where God ever says, now life for my people is always going to be fair. And so all the energy that we spend bewailing life's unfairness is, is wasted energy. When we get through with the complaining, life on planet earth is still unfair. That's what I'm trying to say. You know, a drunk driver can run into and kill a high school valedictorian as surely as he can run into and kill a car full of drug smugglers. There's nothing fair about that. But despite what the reincarnationist might say, there is no instant karma that comes to us in this or in any series of lives. I know that for sure. Jesus tells us clearly in Matthew 5.45 that he, speaking of God, causes the sun to shine on the evil and the good, and he sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. There is a general providence that God allows to be exhibited and demonstrated to and to bless the lives of both those who are his people and people who have not decided to follow him. There is a generic type of provision that God, his mercy and his grace extends to everybody. But our text, Romans 8.28, says that there is a specific type of providence that God extends only to his people. To those who love the Lord is Paul's wording in our text. The Apostle Paul was a faithful, loving, tireless worker for the Lord. And yet when you examine his life in Scripture, you see that he was not supernaturally protected from tragedy. In fact, when he became a Christian is when the real suffering began 
in Paul's life. I think that we would all be in tacit agreement on that point. He, he lists over in 2 Corinthians 11, if you want to flip over there and, and be astounded one more time by that list, feel free to do that. In 2 Corinthians 11, starting with verse 22, going down to about t- verse 28. And I'm just going to give you a brief cross-section. This by far is not an exhaustive list of the things that Paul said that he endured because of his faith in Christ and because of his commitment and determination to preach the uh, unsearchable riches of Christ and, and to share the gospel message. He says he lists imprisonments and beatings, stone, stonings and shipwrecks, and all kinds of dangers and hardships that he had to endure. Again, I point out, because he had decided to bear the cross of Jesus. Throughout history, God's people have had to deal with very real and very unfair tragedies. Early Christians were not protected from tragedy, but in fact, they were subjected to just like Paul, greater hardship because of their faith. Sometimes spend a little bit of time in Hebrews 11, Faith's Hall of Fame, and start with verse 37 and see what some of those early Christians had to endure, what they experienced, again, because of their faith. And let me suggest it's, it's always been that way. If you decide to become a New Testament Christian before this night is over, I'm here to tell you that it won't always be sunshine in your life. There will be rain. There won't always be people who will pat you on the back and commend you for your decision. There will be people who wonder if you're crazy because you decided to become one of those people. There will be people who will ostracize you. There may be people in your own family who will disown you if you make the decision to follow Christ. But let me tell you, heaven will surely be worth it all. And once we make that decision, we will see that whatever difficulty, whatever obstacle, that life may put in our way can be easily overcome by God himself who equips us to be able to deal with life's difficulties. So again, when you look at the early Christians, they weren't protected from tragedy any more than Paul was. And we just need to be careful that we're not angry at God for failing to do what he has never promised to do. He's never promised a healthy, long life or a life that would be fair if you'll just sign on to my army. He never said that anywhere. What he did promise was this, in the world you will have you will have tribulation, but take courage, I've overcome the world. That, of course, is John 16 in verse 33. Let's turn to the pages of the Old Testament for a moment. Let me give you an example of, of how not to help. That is, when you see other people who are going through difficulties, or maybe when you're going through times of trial yourself, but especially when we're trying to minister to other folks around us, and we're trying to, to the very best of our ability, to, to weep with those who, who weep and, and laugh with those who laugh. And, and to be able to share in, in whatever it is that they're going through. I think that's the reason why God has put us in, in his forever family. So that we can be that kind of support system. But in the Old Testament, you may remember that, that Job was suffering. Isn't that a great understatement? Job was suffering. Read the ch- first chapter of Job sometime if you haven't read it lately. And see everything that Job experienced and all that he lost in one 24-hour period. And imagine, if you can, what it would be like if you had to go through that and experience that kind of loss. Now, clearly, Job did not understand the why of it. When we talk about the patience of Job, as the Bible refers to, we need to be careful that we don't interpret that or mislead people with the idea that the patience of Job means that Job sat back and took it without ever questioning. If you don't believe that Job had some questions, you need to reread the book. He questioned God over and over again. He wanted to know why this was happening to him, despite the fact that he was trying to faithfully serve the Lord and live for him. 
And so he, he didn't understand the why behind it. And he, and he asked that question out loud. He cried out in pain. He wanted to know why God was doing this to him. And his friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, misunderstood Job's utterance as a question of doubt rather than as an exclamation of pain. And so they immediately jumped in with their best and finest and greatest hits. That is, the sermons that they had prepared for just such a situation. So at the very time, watch this carefully, that Job needed acceptance and reassurance and support the very most, what they gave him was sermons and advice, which is not what Job needed at that moment in his life. Job didn't need scolding, folks. He needed holding. He didn't need lectures. He needed lifting up. And today when someone comes from the divorce court, from the hospital, or from the cemetery, what they need most is a shoulder to cry on. They need someone to hear them as they express their pain, their helplessness, their confusion, and maybe even a degree of despair. They don't need that moment scolding either. They need, they need holding. So how can we help when others are hurting? When real difficulties come, well-meaning friends certainly want to step in and help to minister to them in any way that we can. Joy touched on this in class this morning, and I think it's an important point for us to remember. I think we talked about it in my class Wednesday night. When you've gone through a particular circumstances, a particular trial in your life, that uniquely qualifies you and equips you to help others who are going through the same type, type of trial. If you've experienced divorce, now you are, you are especially equipped to minister to those who are going through the same kind of circumstance. If you've lost a, a parent or a, or a child, you know how people are feeling, at least to some degree. And you can go to them and you can say with sincerity, I know to some degree how you're feeling because I have experienced. Now, those of us who haven't had those experiences, we may sympathize, but we can't empathize. And so when we step in to try to help others, sometimes the response is, is a great help, but sometimes, like Job's friends, it only compounds the problem. And so we don't want to be that person. For example, recently a, a preacher friend had to stand by helplessly as he saw his precious 22-year-old son, Danny, die. Danny was in the intensive care unit for well over a week, balanced between life and death. And during that time, because his dad, Rusty, was a minister... A lot of church folks came by to, to check on Danny and to visit with the family. There were caring friends that came by, and each one of them, Rusty, would later write about this particular experience, sincerely wanting to help, and he said some helped and some didn't. From that experience, Rusty shares with us what did and did not help. And I want to spend the major part of the rest of our time tonight sharing with you his on experiences that he writes about after the death of his son. In the first place, he said that he and his family were most blessed when visits were brief. That showed care. It helped share the pain. But he said when the visits were prolonged, that became very burdensome, very difficult sometimes, even in tough times, to, to carry on a, a conversation. So Keep the, brief, the, the visits brief. Second, he's, he did not appreciate people asking for more details of Danny's condition than what he had already offered. He said if he gave a general answer to someone's question about his condition, it was because he wanted to give a general answer. And so he was made uncomfortable for those who pressed for greater details about his physical condition. Number three, he said cards, flowers, and phone calls always helped. Fourthly, 
He said it was particularly helpful for visitors to offer to pray with a family. That just makes sense, doesn't it? Even if you don't know what to say, you can say, can we pray together? And that's always a burden shared. One thing that did not help but brought much pain was the visitors who wanted to talk about their own friends and relatives who had been in a coma just like Danny was. Let me tell you about someone I know or someone in my family who's experienced that he said that never helped. They were comforted when visitors shared their special memories of Danny. They enjoyed talking about him and remembering his bright, spicy personality. And to this day, several years after his death, they still enjoy having a conversation. Don't stay away. If someone has lost a loved one, don't stay away from conversations about the person they've lost. They enjoy that. That is, there is a sense of fulfillment in knowing that that person has not been forgotten. And so when someone tells you a funny anecdote about that person or something that they an experience that you shared, that's usually always uh, something that is appreciated by the family. Basically, Rusty relates, they just needed loving support. They did not need advice. And so that's one thing that we can do to make sure that we are helping. Don't try to advise someone who was hurting. All those who later came to his funeral and sent cards, he said, were very helpful. Even though the family wasn't able to speak to each one of them and thank each person personally. And in the months since his death, they have readjusted to life, but life without their son. The bottom line will be the first to tell you that he, that his life can be painful and difficult. After all, I think we agree it's supposed to be. In this fallen world, there are bad things that happen that cannot be either ignored or denied. Life on this terrestrial ball is painful at times, but there is a normal, healthy grief process. And Danny's family is, is doing well. In the fourth place, we again need to, to reemphasize how important it is that we gain the right perspective on tough times. It depends on how you look at it. Because the principle upon which this lesson is based has helped the family more than just about anything. If they had chosen to focus on how unfair it was for Danny to have been born with his particular disorder, which I cannot even begin to pronounce, and to get to live only 22 years of life, Rusty later writes that they would have felt angry and frustrated and cheated. If they had fo focused only on the fact that why did God only allow us to have our son for 22 years? But they recognized that none of us, watch this carefully, none of us is promised another breath. Every moment is not something that is to be expected and demanded. It is a wonderful blessing that God grants us with. Their, their son had over 22 years of that and they consider each of, moment of his life to have been a blessing. After all, as Rusty would write at the end of his book, it depends on how you look at it. Let me mention some unhealthy responses to tragedies and then we're through. There are some unhealthy ways to respond when tragedy comes into our lives and some, some responses actually imp impede the healing process. The first of those unhealthy responses, I think, is, is misusing hindsight. Some adults find it almost impossible to accept the fact that there are simply some things that are outside of their control. 
And so the question of why did this happen to us can't always be answered, and it's very difficult for them to wrestle with that conundrum. They think that they're supposed to always be in charge and that they simply cannot handle failure and and that anything outside of their control may, to them, be interpreted as a lack of faith or a lack of, of God's providence working in their lives. After a serious accident, they punish themselves with what uh, some psychologists have called the what-ifs. What if I had gotten in my car and, and pulled out of my driveway just a few minutes early or a few minutes later, I would not have been in this tragic accident that cost someone their life. Or what if I'd taken a different route? Or after serious illness, they say, what if i just called the doctor one day earlier? Here is an immutable fact, folks, and I hope that you listen carefully. No one of us knows the future. We go along day by day making thousands of ordinary decisions, and we only have the information before us at the time. Besides, if we had started earlier or later, we have no way of knowing if something worse might have happened. Watch this closely. No one ever knows what would happen if what happened hadn't happened. I hope that makes some sense. The second abuse of hindsight is the one that I see in my own experience more and more, and that's blaming self. Those with the tendency to look backward tend to ask, where did I go wrong? And they blame themselves. Now, sometimes that question is legitimate, as we'll see in a moment. That's especially true in two cases that I see, and that's when a child rebels or when a mate leaves. And, of course, there are situations where the person is so irresponsible that they drove that child or that mate into rebellion. And if that's true, then they need to make the appropriate corrections in their lives. And and yet it might very well be that they've done nothing wrong and they punish themselves unnecessarily. We all know of good godly parents who poured their lives into their children and had one or more of those children go wrong. And and many times they spend the rest of their days going, what did we do wrong? What could could we have done better to ensure that our child would would maintain the, the, the pathway of faith? There's the mother who discovers that her unwed teenage daughter is pregnant. There's the loving Christian dad who's called to the police station because his teenage son has been charged with drug possession. Where did they go wrong? Well, maybe nowhere. Think about this. And this is a general observation. It might be right. It might be wrong. But I think it's right. Our generation is the first generation to to blame parents when children rebel. In previous generations, we had the good sense to blame the child. That is the one who was doing the rebelling. We'd say to some rebellious young person, your parents didn't bring you up that way. Or I know that you were taught to do better than that. We we put the responsibility on the person who was actually doing the infracting. And it may well be that the child was given the right direction and willingly chose to go against the grain of what he was taught and everything that his parents held to be of value. You see, they make their own decisions as they grow up. And they must accept the responsibility for those choices. God had two special children, the Bible says. Their names were Adam and Eve. How did they turn out? Well, you know the answer to that. They both rebelled. Well, was that God's fault? Was it his responsibility because his first two children rebelled against what he wanted for them? Was he to blame? Well, you know the answer to that. The Bible makes it clear that they alone were to blame. And if that's true of God and his children... There's some parents in this audience that need to cut themselves some slack. If there were something that we could do to win back every wayward child, 
or that we could do to ensure their faithfulness, there would never ever be another broken-hearted Christian parent. Romans 14, 12 very clearly says, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. And that means everyone is ultimately responsible for his own behavior. And that means that self-recrimination is an unhealthy way of responding to tragedy in our lives. The poor me, I'm no good attitude is a poor attitude that almost always leads to depression and withdrawal. Said another way, pity parties never help. Third is the tendency to blame others. Another common mistake is to place the blame on other people. Instead of channeling energy toward finding a solution or maybe the healing of circumstances and the hearts of people, some people are caught up in finding someone or something to blame, and that too is counterproductive. Fourth is misusing anger. Another unhealthy way of responding to tragedy is to strike out in anger. You know, it's like the person who stubs his toe on the chair leg and then he kicks the chair. Or he can't loosen the nut, so he throws the wrench. At a time of tragedy, such as a death in the family, you know, everybody needs to be very careful about how he responds to others because in moments of hurt, it's when sometimes we lash out in anger. Emotions are running high. It's not uncommon for things to be said or done without thinking that can cause pain in relationships for years to come. The bottom line is change what you need to change. Accept what you cannot change. Repent when repentance is called for, when that is necessary. Receive forgiveness. And here's the hardest part. Then go on with your life. The Apostle Paul had enough sin in his, in his past to drive him crazy. If he had chosen to dwell on those sins and to spend time ruminating on them and wallow in them. However, the Bible says that he received forgiveness from God. The blood of Jesus Christ covered most of Paul's sins. No, you know that's not right. It covered every one of Paul's sins. And he would later write, I have chosen. That's the implication. This one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forth to that which lies before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Philippians 3, verses 12 and 13. And that's what we need to do. When God forgives us, we need to forgive ourselves. And we do not need to spend the rest of our lives wallowing in sin that God has already forgiven and covered by his blood. And to acknowledge that some things in life are just beyond our control. It's quite possible to live an entire life without having to deal with some tough times, without some heartbreaking tragedies. But by choosing how to view them, however, you can deal with all of those troubles and tragedies victoriously. In all situations, you say, I'm going to serve God anyway. I'm going to continue to love him. I'm going to continue to do his will in my life because, because that's our purpose on earth. Tonight, if you're not following God's will and you've never become a New Testament Christian, when we sing this next song, I hope that you will make this the time when you say, I, I want to follow Jesus. And I'm going to turn my, my life over to him. And I want his blood to cover my sin. And the Bible says from Pentecost forward, the way you do that is to allow your faith to cause you to sincerely repent of all your past sins. And then to cause you to say publicly, I believe with all my heart that Jesus is God's son and to be baptized to have those sins washed away. If that's what you need to do tonight, we bid you come while we stand and while we sing.